And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. My very first live shot ever, three days in, I was sent to a bar when they're drinking. And so I started talking and one of the people standing behind me pinched me on the behind in my first live shot ever. Where you literally lose control of your body where you're like, would that happen? Please welcome Soledad O'Brien, everybody! Soledad is a former anchor of CNN, MSNBC. She started her own production company where she now produces Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien. Attacking the issues head on, making it right. Is it as simple as money? Yes, we need more funding. Standing by is no longer an option. It's fun for me to hear her say that because I know the real side of her. One thing that has helped make me successful, I would pick flexibility. It's a really good skill in being a reporter where you go out and you think, all right, I'm going to go do a story on X. I remember heading to do a story after the Haiti earthquake. And all of a sudden, we saw a big truck pull up, cut across the highway, basically. Four guys get out with a battering ram in front of a bank. And they ran their way into a bank. We're like, oh, I guess we've got a different story today. When I first started this business, I understood that the failure rate in our business was 90%. What do you mean by that? How do you fail 90% of the time? People who start in our business, Scott, 9 out of 10 don't make it five years. Why is that? It's hard. People think if you sell something, that's the end of your job. Your job doesn't start until there's a claim. That's when you know if you did your job correctly. So to me, it was always about great phrase I learned years ago from someone. He said, nobody ever learned nothing when they were talking. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has supported this show for over two years now, so give them some love. They're one of my all-time favorite tools. And now HubSpot is starting to integrate more AI into their products, which means less time in office, work smarter, not harder. The latest research says that marketers have been able to cut their working time on manual admin tasks in half with the help of AI. Remember, you're not gonna be replaced by AI, you're gonna be replaced by somebody who uses AI. So AI tools have been integrated into the HubSpot platform. ChatSpot and Content Assistant allow you with a simple chat-based command to summarize research, create copy, pull data reports in seconds. So you can spend more time on the action items that really count. Listen, the vibe is work smarter, not harder. And with HubSpot, they're letting you actually enjoy some out of office time this summer. Get started for free today at HubSpot.com. I 
I think like most people uh, who've been around a minute, I've had a lot of inflection points. But if I had to pick kind of the first important one, it would be in college deciding that I wasn't going to go to med school because my entire life probably, well, I was only 20, so <laughs> 10 of the 20 years that I've been around, I had really sort of planned to go to med school. One, I grew up in Long Island, middle class family, and it was definitely like a big stamp of approval by your community. Doctor, being a doctor, uh, was a big deal, you know, and so I was like, all right, that's what I want to do. And so I'd been, I'd worked in a nursing home. I worked as a candy striper. I'd worked in a pharmacy. Uh, you know, I had done. I actually had my certified um, nursing aides uh, documents. Like I was an official uh, CNA, and so all those things, by the way, meant you were getting paid as a, a real healthcare worker pretty early on. And, and that was my path. And I did it. I would love to say I did it for the greater good, but I really did it to build a resume that would look good as I was applying to medical school. But then when I uh, started taking classes, some of them, biology, I was always pretty strong in. I took organic chemistry um, with my sister, uh, who is a, a surgeon, actually, right now. So you could see it worked for one of us and did not work for the other <laughs> one of us. And I remember her telling me, she's a really brilliant, brilliant scientist. And she said, like, I don't understand why you memorize all this stuff. You should be able to deduce the formula of a whatever, a line, let's say, you know, y equals mx plus b. And, and I remember thinking, like, I just didn't even understand what she was talking about. I genuinely had no concept of like understanding the science so well that you were adding value just because you you got it versus like, I'm a good student, I can memorize and regurgitate it. And I think having someone sort of point out, like, I can see that you are not actually passionate about this thing. You're good at it. You can plod your way through it. You can make it happen. But you actually don't want to fully understand it. And I thought that was really, really uh, helpful to me. And so um, uh, that really probably was my very first inflection point. I left school. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I started working at a TV station. And it was there, kind of in the, the middle of kind of not knowing, like, oh, my gosh, the last 10 years I've been focused on going to med school, uh, not knowing what I wanted to do. That helped me realize, like, oh, this other thing, working in a TV station, uh, not you know, being very low on the totem pole. So I was I was removing staples. I was answering phones. I was getting people. I literally was a person who said, do you want fries with that kind of thing? You know, so all those things. And I, I loved the environment. And I sort of got what it meant to be passionate about a thing, even when you're in the lowest, crappiest job. And so I think that for me probably was my very first and probably most important turning point. I love that. And, and Ian, where, you know, where did you come from? Were you always looking for a career in finance, life in finance when you were growing up? That's, go ahead. Hardly from the, well, the interesting perspective there is finance wasn't part of growing up because we didn't have any. So it was always an interesting thing that, you know, when you don't, you're not around it, you don't understand it. And I'll never forget this. So I, I actually went on scholarship to a private junior high school. And in seventh grade, I was going to a party at one of the kids' houses, my mother drove me, and I literally asked her how many families live in this house because I had never seen a house that size, and all I saw was apartments in New York and the 800 square feet that five of us lived in. So I, I didn't understand that. So the interesting part of that is when I went to college, I think the inflection point was, is interesting because I had an interdisciplinary major of government, history, economics, and philosophy. So of course, your first job out of school would be a banker, right? I mean, I had no, I went, the job that I took was the first one that offered me a job. 
That was a job that I took. And it was in New York. It was a commercial lender in the Garment Center in New York City. Okay, and this was, I, I'm dating myself here, but it was 1980 when the prime rate got in 1981 to 21.5%. People think interest rates are high today. Okay, they think they're high today. And so you learn, I learned a lot and I enjoyed it to a point. And then I had one of my clients basically say, why don't you come work with us? And what do you know at that point? If somebody offers you a dollar more, you go. You know, that's at that point in your life. And then I did that for a little bit. And then one of my clients on Wall Street offered uh, me a job. And I did that and it just was not fulfilling. So the inflection point really is the fact that I went back to banking in, in Connecticut. My parents had gotten divorced. I wanted to live near my mom to help her. And I got a job at banking in Connecticut. And I, I was there for a year realizing there's just nothing in this that's giving me any grat gratitude, gratification, anything. And I just said, I don't want to go through the rest of my life like that. So that point says, okay, let's see if we can start this. And fortunately, we're still here. You know, you both operate at the at the highest levels of your industries. And I'm very curious if you were going to just give advice because we have two very different industries and you're both our friends. You've been you know, you've been close friends for mm -hmm. for a long time. And uh, and you have you know, one of you has a background in media and television broadcasting, the other one in finance. But there's obviously these mindset shifts that have allowed you to get to where you are today. And I, I find that, you know, even when there's two wildly different industries that somebody is successful in, you know, that those mindset shifts, those are industry agnostic. So for both of you, just to, to pass over some lessons to people that are listening, what are those mindset shifts that have allowed you to get you to where you are? If I had to pick one thing that has helped make me successful, I would, I would pick a, a flexibility. It's a really good skill in being a reporter where you go out and you think, all right, I'm going to go do a story on X. I remember getting to Haiti and heading to do a story on an orphanage. This was after the uh, Haiti earthquake in 2005. And um, I think it was 2005. And, uh, and all of a sudden, we saw a big truck pull up, cut across the, the highway, basically. Four guys get out with a battering ram in front of a bank. And with the battering ram, wow. they ram their way into a bay. We're like, oh, I guess we've got a different story today. But, you know, it's very typical in journalism, especially if you're covering a lot of live news, that, you know, what you think you're going out to cover is going to change. Whether your boss is on the assignment desk could just tell you, whether you see something more interesting, or you're in the middle of the interview that you had planned to do, and you're, you're hearing someone reframe the issue so dramatically, you think, oh, my gosh, I'm... I'm completely wrong. Like my thoughts on this was, were just off. So I, I think that's helped me both in just being a journalist, but also in life. I'm very much a, there's a plan A, if that doesn't work, we turn to plan B. Plan B doesn't work, you turn to plan C. When I was a kid, my mom used to say, you know, everybody gets uh, the same 24 hours. And you know, what you need to do if something goes wrong, somebody breaks up with you, you have a little heartbreak, you something sad happens to you, take your 24 hours, like boo-hoo all you want, but then hour 25, you know, start making lists and figuring out pros and cons and what do I want to do next? So I'm a big list maker. I'm a big believer in like focus and wallow and be miserable for 24 hours and then come out the other side of it pretty fast. You got to start working on, okay, plan A is not going to happen. It is just not going to happen. What's plan B and how can I leverage everything out of plan B 
to make it the most successful thing that it could be. And I, I think I've just naturally always been very good at, nope, that's not happening. We turn this way. And, uh, and, and those would probably be the, the real keys to, for me, being successful because you don't get stuck in something that's not going well and you don't blame yourself and you don't suck every, I do actually for 24 hours straight. I drag everyone, the 25th hour. everyone around me comes down and well, I'm in bed eating the Haagen-Dazs and yeah. <laughs> crying like a baby. <laughs> But then, you know, but then I literally just start saying, okay, like, what does this look like next? And that's a really, yeah. a really helpful skill and a very learnable skill. You know, it is a learnable skill to say, okay, start making a list. And, and you know, how about yourself? What was, what was one of those mindset things that helped you get to where you are today? So you'll see why we're friends, by the way. And just at the risk of embarrassing my friend. <laughs> As consummate a professional as Soledad is, she's an even better person by light years. So you have to understand that it's fun for me to hear her say that because I know the real side of her as, and, I, and she knows the real side of her. Yeah, you got it. You got both. By the way, you have to call each other out. So if somebody yeah. is like saying, "Oh, this is what I do. Like this is my routine. Yeah. This is you know, like this is what I do when I wake up in the morning." If that's not true, I only I eat know healthily. It. I never have yeah. a cocktail. Yeah. I work out every morning. Cold plunge. <laughs> go for five mile runs. Yes. Like if that's yes, not <laughs> that's me. Yes, the one thing yeah. you will never worry about. So that is calling me out if she needs to. That will not be a problem. I guarantee you that. So, uh, but for me, it actually was really when I kind of changed the jobs. And, you know, you're starting, this is more a career than a job. And what you start to realize kind of quickly, and there's, there are certain things that happen in, in this, and I'm gonna tell a quick story, but you start to realize that there's something out there bigger than you when you're doing this work. So if someone's my client, what's important to them is much more than important and what's important to me. And you have to think like that. And that mindset shift carries through to everything that you do because that's where your belief and your passion comes from to make sure that it's right. Because in my line of work, if something goes wrong and we haven't done it correctly, it's a serious problem. So you have to be on every day with that belief and passion. And for me, one of the things that made that, I would say solidified that is probably the best way to put it is having a death claim very, very early on in my career when you're not prepared for it. When you don't know- What's that mean? I'm sorry, I know you guys know, but I don't know. When you say, it, does it mean someone dies and they claim they want to claim no, their insurance? It means you have to pay it out. Somebody bought our insurance and they died. And that means you're paying it out. And the story that I had was someone who was 49 years old, three kids, five, three, 18 months, walks into McDonald's, on a Saturday morning to order breakfast for his kids, cradling the 18-month-old and drops to the floor, gone. And this was in like the second year of my career. Jeez. We are not prepared for that. You know, today, after all these years, I think I've got a, a PhD in psychology, not by choice, mm -hmm. it just kind of happened. And so when you're dealing with those kind of things and you realize what that does to the family, and the, the story was I got a call Monday morning from the brother-in-law who said, um, you know, I, I, it was somebody I was supposed to get referred to. Hi, how are you? He goes, well, it's not why I'm calling. And he tells me the story. You know, you're emotionally shot. He said, well, I just want to let you know his wife is going to be calling you shortly. And you hang up the phone and go, what am I going to say? What, what am I going to do? And the phone rings and my hand was literally shaking, picking up the phone. And I, I said, hello. And she said, I just want to say thank you. 
uh, we're not going to be okay, but just because of what you've done for us, financially, we don't have to worry. Thank you. And she hung up. So what did I do? Fall apart, you know, cry, all that. But I of said, course, I'm never, yeah. ever, ever going to go into a meeting not thinking that I can't help. That's a mindset shift. And it wasn't by choice. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there, juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. 
If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Both of your careers, both of you, you, you do what you do because it's much more meaningful than just your own success. So, I mean, when you're telling a story that could that could bring to light something that is a horrible thing, or if you're literally consoling somebody and you're setting up a policy that would allow an individual that doesn't have the money to afford a funeral and to afford to live their life after a loved one or a spouse has passed away and they lose their job, the 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 similar thread between those two is that you've you've focused your entire career on doing things for a cause much bigger than yours. And I think that that's actually why you're so successful at what you do because you you operate at this level that okay, I need to I need to perform because there's much more on the line than my own personal satisfaction, my own personal paycheck. Does that make sense? Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I 
Yes, but I mean, that sounds really amazing, but that's not how I started. I started making X and I needed to make more. I, you know, oh, well, I, yeah, yeah. So, but like, we grow. Yes, we, we grow, grow over and, time. And I think you also begin to, because I literally was like, I'm making $11,000 a year and the writer job pays twenty five. So if I could get that, that would be amazing. Yes. I mean, it would, honestly, I would love to say, you know, I thought of my fellow man at every turn, but I didn't. I thought if I could make twenty five, I actually could start paying my bills. And so I really thought, like, I just need the next level of expertise because it, it bumps you up. And in TV news, you need areas of, um, what's the right word, where you're, you, you differentiate yourself. So if you become a writer trainee and you're a writer, that's a whole different category than being a production assistant, of which anybody can kind of, it's very, very low bar of entry. So I really start off just kind of like chip my way up and up and up salary-wise uh, because that's what was important to me. And I think it really took a, a little bit of time before I recognized that when you had a platform, you also had a responsibility, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a process of growth just by age. You begin to look around a room and think, oh, my God, I'm the only woman of color in this room. So when people start to say things or maybe leave people out, like, ugh, I got to raise my hand. And I would sit in meetings sometimes like, oh, gosh, don't do it. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. And like, oh, <laughs> here I am. I got to raise my hand. So um, so I think as you grow and also you get more expertise and you become more solid in your job and your um, hierarchy, hierarchically at the top, all those things make it easier to start saying, it's not just about me and, and now I'm making enough money that I can pay my bills. It really is, what do I get to do with this? How do I figure out even who I am in this job in the world? And, and what, do I, you know, what are my responsibilities here? And, and so I think when those things come together for people, and I think it really does come together for everybody at some point, you begin to mm -hmm. think about like, well, what is the whole point of, of this job and this life? Like, what am I doing here? Then you begin to think about how to best leverage all the things that you have to hopefully make the world a little bit of a better place. And, and Ian, did you feel that way when, when you, I mean, this kind of slapped you in the face very, very early on Yeah. because two years in, you have a death claim and you're dealing with this. So it's like you go from zero to a hundred real quick. Um, yeah. but as you, as you sort of progress in your career, how, how has your like mindset shifted? Now you, you understood the responsibility year two, but I mean, nothing's changed since then. It's still more responsibility, more burden. Um, very still, you said you got a you got a, a, a cycle a psychology degree while doing this job. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because what you tend to find out is that it, it's really an odd thing in our our world because we talk about the fact that if you don't have what we do and you need it, you can't get it. So I, mm -hmm. we're kind of funny about it, but it's you either too old, too sick, or too dead. None of the above are good. And so we, that to me is an enormous responsibility that we have to do it right the first time. We can't afford to be, have an off day from that perspective with whoever we're dealing with. And having unfortunately or fortunately dealt with many situations in different types of times where people needed us. So much of it is in our world that people think if you sell something, that's the end of your job. Your job doesn't start until there's a claim. Mm -hmm. That's when you know if you did your job correctly. So to me, it was always about, can we make a difference? And if we make a difference, we can make money. It was never the other way around. Now, part of that, if I'm gonna be perfectly uh, direct, is 
when I first started this business, I understood that the failure rate in our business was 90%. 90%. What do you mean by that? People How do you fail 90% of the time? People who start in our business, Scott, nine out of 10 of them don't make it five years. Nine out of 10 don't make it five years. Why is that? It's hard. It's really hard. It's very, and very what you hard. have to do, the way I describe it, so that'll smile at this, but the way I describe it is, arrows have to be out. It's not about you, it's always about them. And that's not always easy, especially if you're going to a meeting. If it's your agenda, not their agenda, it doesn't work very well. And a lot of people in the finance world do that. And we've tried not to do that. So if your arrows are pointing out, you're there for them. And the, the heart, the, the very difficult conversation sometimes in your own head is that depending on what happens, we may be the most important people someone ever meets if something happens and we did our job correctly. That responsibility, as Soldat said, is enormous. And if you have that responsibility, do we do it right all the time? Hardly. Make lots of mistakes. But the reality is we try never to make a mistake on that side. And mm -hmm. in starting a business that had a 90% failure rate, you know, part of it was maybe I was in my own sense, trying to fail. That's a psychology story for another day. We could do a whole hour on my, <laughs> my mental process. So, but I think those shifts continue constantly, but they are reinforced by your belief. One more lesson I'd love to pull out of you and then we're gonna, we're gonna switch gears and go and talk about some of the work that you've done over your career with, with diversity, equity, and inclusion and serving different communities. But last career lesson, um, I want you both to tell me a story of the biggest failure that you've had. How did you overcome that? The shit hit the fan moment. Well, let's see. Should I start with being fired on live TV? Because that's hard. Or should I do <laughs> the one, fun. my very first live shot, where I was literally groped by a guy? Because I didn't realize you shouldn't oh let gosh. people stand behind you in a live shot. I'd never done a live shot before. So there's a, how much time do we have exactly, Scott? Because oh I got a lot. You pick one story. You, you pick know, that. Both, um, both of those are horrifying. So uh, You know, <laughs> actually, my, my very first live shot ever uh, I w had just become a local reporter in San Francisco. I'd never been on air before, but I got the job because I'd been a producer at NBC News. And so I was sent out to our affiliate in San Francisco, which is a very big market. And they sort of swore because I'd never been on live TV. And back in the day, everybody, now everybody's live all the time. But back then, there were only certain people who went live. And so they said, you know, don't worry about it because you're, you're not going to have to do anything for the first couple of weeks. We're going to let you get your feet wet. Three days in, I'm out doing a story on the San Francisco Giants that actually made it into the, the playoffs. And um, Dusty Baker was the coach, and I was sent to a bar, not to the game, to a bar, to go interview people who were also not at the game, <laughs> uh, watching the game at a bar. And so I get there, everybody's drinking, and I'm interviewing them, and they're drinking, and I'm editing my story, and they're drinking. Like, you know, this is going nowhere good, you know. But I didn't know Obviously, my yes. first live shot ever <laughs> that I was doing. We set up our lights, and just as they start coming to me, like, Soledad O'Brien is standing by live, uh, I realized, like, wow, everybody's really drunk <laughs> because it's a bar. They're all now, they're, you know, we call these, like, TV lights, um, you know, magnets. Uh, for crazy people sometimes. Yeah. And so uh, I started talking and a, one of the people standing behind me 
reached out and pinched me on the behind in my first live shot ever. And I had never experienced that deer in the headlights where you literally lose control of your body, where you're like, with that happening. So embarrassing. This is my third day on the job. And they had they had had um, a big work stoppage. They just started rehiring people, so I was the lowest paid reporter because I was brand new. Everybody then was making ninety thousand dollars a year, and I was a reporter making thirty thousand dollars a year. So just bad every which way. I get back to the office. My boss, a guy named Al, he's the news director, calls me into his office to talk about uh, Santa Barbara. It would be a much better market for me maybe than San Francisco. I've been there three days. I've moved all my stuff in two duffel bags across the country. And I remember calling back to my boss from NBC News where I'd been a producer, and he said to me, whatever you do, don't quit. Make them fire you if they have to, but do not quit. Uh, these jobs are hard to come by, and I think... Having someone sort of say, it's actually the easier route to throw in the towel, like stick it out and figure it out. Learn, you know, take the small window of time that you have to learn the skill. Um, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you were promised. It doesn't matter what people told you. You know, like you, you have to be able to do this. And so I did. I mean, it's not brain surgery, right? You just kind of figure it out, take some time. Within about three months, I was the, I had figured out live shots and I became the bureau chief for the East Bay, which is in San Francisco, the Oakland and the East Bay, which, you know, I, Ian just gave a look like he was proud of me, but I was the only person in the East Bay, so I made myself the bureau chief. <laughs> Listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you got there. Technically, I was the bureau <laughs> chief, and I'm going to stick with it. But, you know, like you realize that, you know, you just have to put your head down and live mm -hmm. through. Like surviving the horribly embarrassing derailing thing sometimes is the hardest part. And then you actually have to, like, take a moment come up with those steps to figure out how to solve it. So that was the start, but I literally have 999 other versions of other times when things, you know, just don't go well. And you really learn, it's less about what happens and more about how you respond to what happens, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think the answer, the, the key is in the response. What about yourself, Ian? So, I mean, the list of failures, you don't have enough time on this, maybe in 10 podcasts, of the things that I've screwed up in my life. But I'll give you a professional one, which is actually a serious one, and certainly a personal one, which uh, I'll give you two quick ones. But the professional one was very early on, first year of my career, when I was actually talking to someone who was referred to me by a friend, and wonderful guy, I even remember his name, where he was from, um, he was a, a general counsel at one of the uh, United Technologies of all places. But anyway, he had survived cancer. And he was a five-year survivor of cancer. And we had gotten to talking, and I was new in the career, and he said, I like what you're saying, I like what you're doing, but I just got this policy through my association, and I think that's going to be fine for now, but feel free to call me back in six months. And I didn't press it at all or go into what it was and didn't even know to go into what it was that he had. Six months later, I called him. I said, how are you? He said, not good, because the cancer had come back, and it had come back, unfortunately, seriously. And uh, three months later, he was gone. And what nobody knew was that that policy that he got from the association had an exclusion because he had cancer prior. Family got nothing. I, did I know what to ask at that time? Not really. Should I have asked someone to know what to ask? Yeah. So, you know, it's almost 37 years later, and I still think about that. Mm -hmm. But the good news is I never did it again. 
ever did it again. So those are painful lessons. Uh, you know, on the personal side, it's always funny being the finance guy and back in the day, many years ago, having enough debt for, for five people and say, how did that, how did you get there? Well, there's a long story about that, which psychologists would enjoy, by the way. But uh, <laughs> I'd make a lot of psychologists really happy. They, they wouldn't need pension plans. It would just be me. Uh, and so the fun part would be that, you know, you, you have to look at that and say, I failed at that in that time in my life, but I got out of it. I did it on my own. I didn't ask for help. I didn't go bankrupt. I didn't do anything. I just worked harder and, and did it and learned a lot from that too. But I think those failures, just like Soledad said, there are things that you look at and go, what can I learn from that? I was going to say, Ian, I think that's the key, right? Which is if you have something terrible happen and you don't walk away with the gift of a lesson and it just is the terrible thing, like you've really failed then. You know, to me, it's like if this is going to be miserable, like at least we should walk away with something we learned and got out of it. And that's kind of how I've tried to frame it for my my kids. And even for myself, when I'm in a situation where you're like, ugh, I'm in the middle of something and I'm not enjoying this process. You know, what, what do I learn so that we just don't do this again? When I mentor, I tend to say, Scott, to people that, that I think it's the Michael Jordan line that says, I never lose, I either win or I learn. Mm -hmm. And with yeah. people who No, that's mentor, really it. That's really what you try to do and say, you know, they look at you and say, well, that happened to you? I said, well, of course it happened to me. More times than I hope it ever happens to you. Um, let's talk about let's talk about some of the work that you've done, both of you, in different ways with with underrepresented groups. So my backgrounds and, and I come from um, a startup entrepreneurship background. So I've seen I mean, over the course of the past three years, I've seen funding for underrepresented groups massively increase and then decline, which is very, really messed up. Um, so there's a lot, whole bunch of stats around startups and, and seed funding for black entrepreneurs and, and other underrepresented groups. But I think that out of all the people that I've spoken to about this issue, the, the one thing that can help move the needle is, is wealth and access. And I think that a lot, of, a lot of underrepresented groups don't have those two things. And you've both tackled this problem from different angles. I mean, like Soledad, you actually did, I think, a special, if I'm not mistaken, disrupt and dismantle on systemic racism. And Ian, I mean, you've worked with a variety of underrepresented individuals, helping them learn what they have to do to become wealthy, to protect their families. So let's, let's talk about some of the work that you've done. Let's talk about some of the problems that still exist. Because again, my perspective is startup found, like funding, and that was, you know, it was great for like a minute, a flash in the pan for like three to six months, and all of a sudden everybody forgets about it again. Uh, and people don't fund black founders the way they did at you know the end of 2021 or early 2022, if I'm, my dates are right. So what are the problems that we still see? What are some of the things that you discovered in your work, Soledad, when you've actually done the research and you've done the investigation? And also, Ian, just from some of the clients that you work with. You know, you name, I think, exactly the problem, right? I think the number that gets thrown around a lot is that... Um, black founders, and sometimes we're talking about Silicon Valley specifically, get something like access to 1% of all mm -hmm. the dollars that are out there. And some people have actually said it's it's lower than that. And then if you start doing subgroups, right, look at, well, black and women or black and you know immigrant, you know, whatever. So it's bad is kind of the takeaway. And of course, it's a problem on a lot of fronts. I think you just have built in uh, biases. People like to fund those people who they 
look like them, who remind them of them. Like, oh, you remind me of you. That's exactly what I was like. And we did actually a documentary on this thing called the Silicon about Silicon Valley, where we had a professor, a guy from Duke University, Professor Wadwa, who had done very well in, um, as a tech founder, advising a group of young black startup founders who are, who are at an accelerator. And he said to them, listen, here's what I did. Uh, I came here as an Indian coming to America. I hired a six foot two white guy and I had him front everything for me. You know, and it was a really, and, and the, the people in the accelerator, the young black, um, I'm going to say kids, but they really were in their 20s, yeah. were shocked, like appalled, right? And his thing was, this is a solution. Get someone to be the face of your He's just trying to play the shitty game that exists. And basically. I think they were like, wow, this is a shitty game that exists. And, and, and I think for these young founders, part of their thing was, but it matters that I exist, right? I also have to be inspiring other people and say, I exist. And if I exist, then you can exist. And of course, you also have the added problems of often um, founders of color can't just turn to mom and dad to fund some of their stuff. Founders of color often face bigger obstacles. Founders of color, frankly, don't always have the same access to, here's what my dad did for 20 years. So I have been yeah. in, it, we run, my husband and I run. Well, a, because the seed round's always family. It's usually family. So rich uncle, rich parents, rich rich somebody in the and community. And knowing right? how to ask, right? There, When yeah. we started our little foundation, we send girls off to college. Uh, we had so many young women who'd had who'd, whose parents hadn't had an office job. They had not a clue. I mean, we used to do seminars on this is what you wear. This is literally, you know, how would you know if you didn't know? And I think we often don't recognize the value in that, right? There is a, a value and a benefit to knowing how to walk into an office and behave, knowing that this is the job of the receptionist. I mean, imagine if you didn't have a parent, one of the young scholars we had who, who was a student at Stanford University, a brilliant young woman, her mother was living in a homeless shelter uh, and she was crashing in my apartment to do her internship at an investment bank. I mean, it was just craziness. And, and she remembers she said to me the first day, um, because most of the people who were her colleagues at this bank were the kids whose dads either, you know, were clients of the bank or dads worked at the bank. <laughs> and, and she was dressed like you'd be dressed to go work at the Gap, like a perfectly nice outfit, but not a I'm on Wall Street yeah. outfit. And I remember she said to me, she said, I'm just dressed completely wrong, right? Smart enough to know, like, it's not, you don't Which fit Which is probably in. the worst feeling. And too. meanwhile, this is a girl who's brilliant. She was a top-ranked chess, she was like this close to being a chess master, like brilliant, brilliant young woman, but very well aware. Like, I yeah. am struggling because I don't have it. And so I think this plays out in every which way. I mean, certainly for founders who are looking for funding, people look at you and say, oh, not you. You you are not part of this, regardless of how good your idea is or how smart you are or, you know, what you've been through and what kind of resilience you have. So it's not it's not un unusual, I don't think. Um, I think the, the hard part is really getting people to recognize that it exists and then and, you know, as you know, in the wake of George Floyd, yeah, all those dollars came in because people wanted to do something. But they also dried up very quickly when they recognized that they wouldn't really be asked to show their work, <laughs> show where they'd spent the money, and show a, a commitment. Um, it's one of the things I like about journalists. We get to, like, knock on the door and say, no, no, we're, we're here. We're still counting it. Uh, but, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously a really uh, challenging problem. And I think for me, just highlighting the challenge is really a very important first step.
and Ian, in, in the work that you do, I mean, we're tackling this. So this is the this is the the solution to this problem is not is not just one solution. It's not just oh, we got to fund black founders, or it's not just we got to give uh, underrepresented groups and minorities access to more. It's everything. It's everything all at once. So in your particular case, I mean, if you work with groups to understand um, how to set their lives up, set their families up, so that, God forbid, when somebody passes away, uh, their kids will have access to wealth and they're not they're not trying to figure out how to pay rent next month or their mortgage next month. This is another key in this very, very complex problem. But, but speak to me about some of the, uh, some of the things that you realize when you work with underrepresented groups and, and some of the people that you've worked with that we have to do better. God, I could do that for an hour, but, but the, the reality is, let's start with this, with the profession. The profession was a white guy profession forever and so in the multicultural communities the trust of people that do what we do was really low because they didn't see in general people that look like them doing what we do and that's that's shifting the great news is that's tremendously shifting and our company specifically and and my particular agency scott you would think if you came to an agency meeting you think you're at the united nations and that's a testament (laughs) to the leadership of this agency, the, the, the guy who the agency is phenomenal. And he's been like that forever. He, nobody had to tell him to do that. But he was like that long before the George Floyd uh, murder and anything like that. And it was in, but I think you have to look at those things and go, how are we going to make a difference without any of those preconceptions? And part of that is in our world to change the wealth gap is to have people who do it, what I do, look like the communities they're in. It's so important so that the, in addition to having, you know, my clients are from everywhere, but in addition to that, that's not as important to me as the mentoring we can do to bring people into the business and keep them in the business. More important than just bringing them in. So one of the things, I, if you don't mind a story, because I tend to tell stories. I love stories. Story, tell as many I, stories I, as I'm you want. I'm a story guy. So um, I got heavily involved in, in the African-American community here at, Nor- at Northwestern Mutual was my primary company. And what happened was there were a lot of study groups going on to make sure that as we got more diverse, which we've done incredibly, in fact, the majority of the growth at this particular company is from multicultural markets, which is really cool. But when I first got involved in this, um, I would go to these study groups and I went on my own dime and I would go to the study groups and, and I would have some time there because the people at the company knew me and I would have some time and they would, I would start my talk and within the first five minutes, and I can't tell you how many of these they did, but the same question happened every time. And the same question was, why are you here? But in most cases, it was more, why are you here? Like, what are you doing here? Okay, what box are you trying to check or whatever? And the beauty yeah, yeah. was, I got to say the same answer every time. And that's what's propelled a lot of what's happened because the answer, I always said it was three things. Number one was last I checked, the multicultural markets, especially the African-American market, which is where I was at the time, had billions and billions and billions of dollars in it. I'm a business person, I want some of it. Now what tended to happen was that kind of everybody says, oh, okay, this is part of the business thing, which it is of course, to some extent, because their markets 
for everybody that make money and do things. The second was, I, I'm a great believer that to be stupid, and pardon me for saying it that way, that's learned behavior. I didn't learn that behavior. I still haven't learned that behavior. And so if you don't understand the behavior, you don't act like that. So it never occurred to me not to be in all markets and to help all people. Just treat people kindly. And the third thing, which I think was very important, and I, this was many years ago. Uh, people, by the way, Scott, have asked me, um, you know, why didn't you tell people you were doing this 20 years ago? And I said, I didn't do it to tell people. It didn't. That's, it that's another issue. The, the, the signaling I didn't over the actual act I, is a big issue. I did it because it was right. So the third thing was I looked around and said, you know, I was fortunate. I had done okay at this. And I looked yeah. back and I said, the company doesn't look like the world. What can I do to help? Somebody's got to step up. And at some point, you got to look in the mirror and say, you got to step up. And so I've been doing it for a long time. And, and to me, the, it's just, it's part of life. It's, you know, that's what you do. And then when the company starts to look like the rest of the world, then you start to succeed and do better. And we're in the process of doing that. And that makes me really happy. I've really enjoyed, too, that the conversation generally in business has moved away from diversity, kumbaya, I'm a good person, so I want to do good things, to being like, I'd like to win, and I'd like to make money. Mm -hmm. And I know if I can get into more markets where there are people and those markets are growing, then I will win. Why would I cede this area off to somebody else when I'm good at my job? I, and I, I think that conversation has happened on a lot of fronts, certainly in newsrooms too, right? This idea of if you cannot communicate with people, they're just gonna leave and they're gonna go to now the many, many options that exist, especially with social media. They're not guaranteed to stay with you. And if you don't represent them or at least give them a sense that you cover their community and you care about their community, they'll be like, great, no problem. We don't need, we don't need you, we don't need to support you. So I see that happening a lot in business as well, generally. As you all know, Success Story is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Network has incredible podcasts like the Gold Digger Podcast. If you are looking for a new podcast, you have to check it out. It's hosted by Jenna Kutcher. The Gold Digger Podcast helps you discover your dream career with productivity tips, social strategies, business hacks, inspirational stories, and so much more. I tune into them every single week. They just did an episode on a four-day work week experiment that they actually conducted in their own office. A few other recent episodes I enjoyed we're on how to hire A players in your organization in 14 days or less. Jenna Kutcher is an OG in the podcasting game. You got to go check out the Gold Digger podcast at the HubSpot Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcast. And I, it's so interesting. Oh, I was going to just say that I've noticed that too. I've noticed that if you look at a, an executive team, a C-suite, a board, when it's a diverse group, that is, that is a much stronger organization because they have all these different worldviews and different ideas and different backgrounds that not only can you tap into different markets now effectively, you also have people thinking in different ways, which always just makes an organization or a company stronger. There was sorry, an interesting, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to add something, if I may, yeah. to that point you just made. There was an interesting study that was done, and what they found was that when you had people who were very different as opposed to all of the same homogeneous group, that they had less of a sense that everybody was just going to rubber stamp um, what they were saying. So you ended up having to defend much more and people were much more challenging to you. You look at something like 
and actually I would use as um, maybe the leadership team at GE when they started going through all their troubles, right, where you had this homogeneous group of folks who played golf together and all were the same, you know, there's not a person who's going to stand up and say, you know what, boss, I think this is a bad idea. You, you end up creating this yes man kind of philosophy. Uh, and I, they have found, there's a great study, I should send it to you, um, where because you don't know people very well, you're not in the all in the in-group together, but you're forced to be working together that you, you they describe it as more challenging work environment, but the results are better, right? Because you don't feel comfortable like everybody's gonna have your back no matter what you say. You have to bring your A game, you have to defend your A game, and then you have to expect to be challenged, which of course is always a little bit more uncomfortable. Ian, what were you, what were you saying before I cut you off? I'm sorry. Well, to me, so much of, you know, we talk about the wealth gap and all, which is crucial, but in the protection world, and I'm in the protection world, if that protection isn't there and something happens, the wealth gap gets worse. So as much as we can talk about wealth and, and, and investing and all the other stuff, if the protection isn't in place, it doesn't matter if something happens. So that's part of what we're trying to do in these communities too, is say that if we can create that, and create that kind of, and the word I want to use is leverage, because we it is leverage, right? If we can create that, then all of a sudden, a lot of the mistrust and, and people who say they don't, as an example, say they don't believe in life insurance as an example. And my response is always the same to that, Scott, which is it's not a religion. It's not something to believe in or not believe in. It's a tool that can basically bridge some of these gaps especially in communities that need it the most. Um, I want to talk about some blind spots that still exist. because there's, there's a lot of them. One of the ones that I've heard of, and maybe maybe both of you have some insight or commentary on this, but we'll talk about some other systems as well. I, I, I've heard and I've looked into corporate boards and you see the corporate boards that are based in North America. They're very diverse, but then you go overseas and the corporate boards for the same company in a different part of the world is not diverse at all. So you see that there's still these blind spots and and where companies feel like they have to do something, but it seems disingenuous. It seems like they're not really taking it seriously. So that's a huge issue. Um, and I don't really have a fix for it. I'm just sort of bringing up one thing that I've seen that is not, uh, it doesn't feel good. It's not a feel good thing. So what are some other sort of blind spots or systemic barriers that are still so obvious that we have to fix um, that really haven't gotten better at all since George Floyd, since uh, since like this whole this whole change and shift in in us paying attention to this. Certainly, in TV news, uh, you know the real decisions are not made in the anchor desk. They matter, but they're they're made in the editorial meetings, and they're framed in editorial meetings. So when people say, but look at our diverse team and you've seen all the promos for every single TV station, right? You're like, yeah, no, no, no. Show me the, the people making the decisions. <laughs> That's actually what yeah. I want to see because those are the folks who well before as an anchor of a show, before I even you know start thinking about what's going to be in my show, an entire team is, has already sent crews to go and cover a thing. So you know, if I can want to cover something, but if someone hasn't sent a crew off to cover it, then, and also how we would think about covering it. So I, I think there are lots of blind spots. I think there are still lots of blind spots in 
uh, corporate boards um, because sometimes it's not only the the global board that is not particularly diverse. Sometimes there's a, an organization that will talk a lot about how important diversity is to them, and then you're like, well, you know, let me just let me just Google like the board. <laughs> you're like, oh my god, this, you know, to the to the point of actual embarrassment, right? You're like, you literally yeah. should just not talk about diversity at all. Yeah. Spare yourself. Just don't mention it because this is embarrassing. And what you, you know, I've, I've had this conversation sometimes telling people, you realize that when you're looking for employees, and those kinds of employees who can go anywhere, they're so good at their jobs, they can ask for what they want. The first thing they do, right, is like, let me Google who's moved up in this company. Let me see what it looks like. Do I want to? Do I, somebody who wants to go, who can go to 10 different places, do I want to work here? And I, I often will say to them, like, you realize that the, fir- the, the first thing they do is Google, the board and who's in the company in leadership positions. The second thing they do is call the three black people who work in the company and ask them. So if you really want to have access to the best people, you might want to, you know, fix that, you know, those particular blind spots, I would say. Yeah. And, and Scott, I, I, it's interesting to me because I, I've seen people in many companies who you know, who mean it, they care, they want to do it at the higher levels, but it doesn't come down to the levels of the local people. So if you go to a local office in my world, somewhere in, 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 you know, in Iowa, or I'm just picking that as a place, it doesn't matter. And listen, sometimes the pool of people is not as diverse as you'd like it. But if you're in in a Chicago or in Atlanta or New York or something like that, and the leader of the local office doesn't get it and i'm being polite by saying doesn't get it <laughs> yeah. right? i'm just trying to be you know genteel here for the moment it doesn't matter what the people at the top say and i think that it's so important to have that filter down to leaders and like i said where i am where it's it's not even up for discussion that's just the way it is and nobody even considers it being another way and hasn't for years it's about good people, smart people, working hard, taking care of others. Our business is an arrows out business. And that's, that has nothing to do with, with, with you know, who you are, what you are. It's an arrows out business. And when you have a, a, an office full of people from everywhere, everybody tends to work well together in that. So the local leadership matters too. It has to filter down. So, so if, if, we're going to talk about not just in a corporate setting, but now on a very individual, in a community, in an individual basis in a community. Um, what are what are some very tactical things that, say, I could do as an individual? I'm listening to this podcast right now. I know that there's a lack of access to information. I know that I know I know that there are probably uh, massive uh, amounts of economic inequality in certain disadvantaged communities. I'm listening to this podcast. I'm thinking I don't know how to solve for this. I'm not in a position where I can actually action any change. So what do I actually do? Yeah, I would say you you can because a lot of um, a lot of the the things that have to happen are with people making connections. So I would say uh, you tell me what your job is. I get calls a lot where someone will say, there is just a pipeline. I'm like, really? Because I did a project for HBO where I had four women of color as my directors. And the next day, someone will tell me, oh, we cannot find a single woman of color director. I'm like, really? Because I just had four and my company is this big. So, mm-hmm. you're, you know, so number one, 
if you're trying to fill a position and you keep going back to the same places over and over again, which often if you're talking about finance, it's Harvard, Yale, blah, blah, right? You're, you're, just, you're not going to be exposed to all of the best students of color. It's just not a fact. So I would say change how you're looking. Then the other thing that gets annoying, and I know because I've been on these, these groups before, where they need to have a diverse slate. So you end up getting tapped to be put in on the slate, knowing full well that no one's going to hire you. So I've known lots of people who've said, I, I don't want to be part of your slate. I'm, I'm not playing this game anymore because I know you have, you're going to hire your friend. You're just, you need to prove that you had a diverse slate. Push back against the diverse slate. Diverse slate is not a thing. Judge people on the, you know, what they actually uh, accomplish. And then I think you have to say, okay, so I want to, if you want to find black female directors, again, this is my industry, go find one. Right, go find a couple of black female directors and maybe they are already booked on projects for forever. But guess what, I guarantee you, they know five other black female directors because they're all in the same circle. And they'll say, well, you know what? Here are five other people that maybe they're not available, but you should call them. I've actually had to do this a few times in places where I've said, listen, I'm, I'm not gonna keep doing this project if this team is not diverse. It's embarrassing for me, right? I talk a lot about this. I so you put your hand up. And you and you I and say you, and you, you yeah. have to solve this problem. And if you don't solve this problem, and I'm happy to help you solve the problem of our team not being particularly diverse, I will help you. But in a six more months, I'm out. Like I can't be here and be part of this. So and you know, and it, it takes a lot of time. It took us a number of times of going back to the well, of going back to the well, of being like, no, no, I'm serious. So I, I think it's a combination of just being very persistent and especially as you white guys know. If you're the white guys on the team saying that, it carries so much more weight than the women of color on the team who are saying it. If you say, you know, and this is my husband who's white, often will say this in meetings, and I'm like, it is so amazing because every no one expects it from you guys. When you say, you know, diversity is very important to me and it makes me uncomfortable that I'm looking at this and it's not diverse, I am sure you guys are going to solve this problem. Let me know if you need me to help make some connections for you. You do that which is not actually a very heavy lift. And you have gone so far in pushing people. Like, holy cow, diversity matters to these guys? These are not the guys we thought divert. We're used to the whiny Soledad O'Brien raising her hand. But like, it really is a huge deal to do that. And so I would argue anybody who's listening to your podcast who is not there necessarily advocating for more diversity and they're diverse, that's hugely powerful. So I'm going to add to that, not much, because I couldn't have said it better, but put your damn hand up. You said it, Scott. Put your hand up. It's not that hard. And by the way, are you going to do it well and understand everything initially? No, you're not. But the fact that you put your hand up and say, I care and I want to make a difference, maybe people aren't going to believe you at first. That's okay. You got to keep going. Because that, then your credibility gets higher and, and sold out to 100% right. If I'm saying it in a room, it's going to carry some weight because the other part of the weight that it carries, Scott, is I've been doing it long enough that nobody's going to dis argue with me whether or not I've paid my dues in that area and continue to. And it's not paying dues. I'm saying that just from a time perspective. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's what should be done. And the reality of it is, if you put your hand up, People want your help. People want your help. And it's, it, if you get involved, 
it's actually so enormously rewarding and gratifying, you'll want to do it. I think finally, oh, forgive me, Ian, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to add one more thing that I thought of. I think these conversations are often framed as, I'm a good person. Right? I assume everybody's a good person. Like It has nothing to do with that. It really is about who do you have access to in terms of hiring. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm a good person. I don't have any bias when it comes to blah, blah, blah. Well, all of us do. We, we're all you know, full of, of bias. So forget the good person part and literally sort of solve the problem. I asked this once of an executive, and I said to him, you know, their company had uh, a lot of people of color departing. And I, and I said, why don't you track it? And his, you know, thing was like, well, you know, it's just we don't track it. I'm like, but if it were a refrigerator and you just kept, like, it kept failing at some point, right? It was good for 18 months. Then the whole thing, you know, you would literally, you would say, okay, how is it possible that this thing that we put all this money and time into after 18 months just fails? And if it happened again and again, I guarantee you if it were a refrigerator and not a person, you would have a team assigned to figure out what the hell is going on. But because it's a person... Yeah, you don't seem to care. So if you, you know, so again, as we all people have said this a million times, you measure what matters. And when you are in a position to encourage people to measure, because it does matter to you, and you're coming back in two months to get those numbers from them, you know, then you start really holding people, I think, accountable. And again, when you're you're not the typical person talking about diversity, I think that really helps move it along. I think a lot of of everything that you just mentioned the the cause of that is because there's a lot of ignorance towards how can this actually benefit the business so people take action to a degree but if you don't see the diversity benefiting the business psychologically there's only going to be so much action you're going to take you have to tie it back to kpis you have to tie it back to success and i think that what you just mentioned about when you have a, a diverse board or a diverse workforce and everybody has to level up and upskill themselves and how that actually impacts the bottom line of a business, that is very powerful because now it's not just about we tried so hard and we hired, you know, we hired all these, uh, you know, underrepresented individuals and they left, but like we tried. Now it's like, shit, our business is not going to evolve at the same rate that it could because we're losing all of this diverse talent that could actually add so much to how we operate and how we push each other and how we force uncomfortable conversations that can actually end up disrupting ourselves so we don't get disrupted by a competitor. So I think that that is the piece that has to be communicated a lot more. It is no longer kumbaya, we're good people, yeah. and we just think diversity is good to do, which is how it started when I started in TV news in 1987. You know, this is just good to do, and we're good people. You're good. I'm good. Let's just do this good thing. And now it's, I would like to win. And that means I need to build an audience that is absolutely dedicated to me and cares about me. And that means I need stories that reflect the stories. And that means I need reporters. And that means decisions have to be made that get to those stories. It's literally about winning. And, and it always has been for me. Yeah. Um, Ian, what are, what are some assumptions that have to be challenged to make financial advice more inclusive and accessible? Um, first of all, I think that we have to get, get more people in our business, Scott. Yeah. You meant yeah. go to people yeah. and say, let me show you why this is so important that there has to be a building, in my opinion, building up of trust. It's a huge thing in our line of work and in, in different, you know, cultural places, 
people like us are not looked at well for many, many reasons. And we have to start breaking that down. Part of that breaking down is to have people who look like you in the business. And I think that's a huge part of it. And you have to, in my opinion, you have to start asking questions. What I see most times in the financial world, at least that I deal with, is people will go in and say, this is the way I want you to think. No. Step back for a minute. Tell me your story. Because you don't know that story. How that story is framed by the person you're talking to is going to allow you to help them better. And you have to learn and, and talk to people about different things that happen. And some things say, I don't understand that. You know, help me understand that. So it's, it's a lot more about questions than it is answers. Because there are financial things. We could talk for you know, two days about financial things and specific financial products and other things. But much more important is what are you trying to accomplish? What do you want for your family? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? What are your aspirations? Just like anyone else. And once you find those out, then you could start to talk about, hey, here's how we can make that difference. I'm gonna give you one quick, because I'm a storyteller, one quick story. <laughs> well, there's a, uh, one of the people I mentor in our business who's just a wonderful person and a great representative of what we do. And he asked me to mentor him, and I remember we were doing the Zoom, and I'm looking behind him, and he has this picture of a very elderly woman above where he was sitting. And when I see, she looked really old. And I said, you know, I wonder what that picture is about. And what I do with all the people I mentor is say, look, if we're going to do this together, I need your why. If your why, if I understand your why, then I can help you. And if it doesn't match mine, like sometimes I get a why is I want to make money, and that's the only why. It's like, yeah, I'm not the guy for you. It's okay. So I want to hear the why. So I said, so let's do this next week, but I want your why. He goes, okay. And he was sitting in the same spot the next week and said, okay, I want to give you my why. He says, you see that picture behind me? And in my brain, I'm going, now we're getting somewhere. And it was his grandmother who died. That picture was her, I think he said, at 99 or 100. And she died at like 104. She lived in the deepest wow. south. Okay? Picked cotton her whole life. Never got to vote till she was 65. You know, his mother ended up living in Arkansas in a town, you know, I guess the size of my desk, you know, experienced stuff that none of us have ever experienced. And he said, I want to basically make them proud and I want to do the things that I can do to make sure that I'm helping generations, my communities and other stuff. And I said, well, first of all, the answer is yes, I'll be thrilled to mentor you. But I said, I have one question. I said, who are you telling this story to when you're talking to your clients and prospects? And he was silent for a minute. I said, you gave me my answer. You're not telling this story. I said, starting today, I need you to tell this story. You are standing on the shoulders of giants and you're not telling the story. And it's interesting to watch what has happened to him since then because he starts to tell the story. So that, those stories do matter in terms of how we go out and help people and that we can. But also you taking, you taking the human first approach, you taking the human centric approach yeah. and pulling that story out of somebody yeah. is actually how you deal with a community that isn't exactly your community. There it's like stop talking and just listen right. is usually the best way to solve most problems. I couldn't have said it better. And, and you know, it was really interesting one other quick story, when the, you know, in the George Floyd situation, um, 
right after that, I mean, that was during COVID. Nobody was seeing anybody, right? And it was we were yeah. all in our homes and Zooms. But I remember calling 20 of my African-American friends and clients and saying, I need, if, with, if you don't mind, I need to know how you feel. I need you to explain to me how you're feeling because I don't understand it and I need to understand it. And the conversations were phenomenal because it helped me frame where they were coming from better than I would have without asking. Was it comfortable to listen to? No. Was it important to listen to? Did it help me? And everything else it did, not only personally, but in business, it absolutely did. It's incredible what a little empathy can do. It can go a very, very long yeah. way. Soledad, do you have any, I, I, I mean, I asked, I asked Ian what assumptions need to be challenged for, for financial equality, um, but any, any other, it could be financial equality or inequality rather, but what assumptions need to be challenged in your mind? You know, I think there's a sense um, that uh, certain people don't exist or they don't care about the same things. People would ask me often when I'd come back from covering stories in Haiti or Hurricane Katrina or whatever disaster I was covering, and they'd sort of say, you know, what do those people want? And you're like, everybody wants the same thing, literally. Everybody wants, right? They want their their kids to be more secure than they were. They want to live in safe a safe place. I, I don't care where you are and who you are and how you're brought up. These are the things that you want. You want some kind of livelihood that gives you joy and security. And so this idea that like, oh, those people over there, I just don't understand them. They're so, so different. I think we make assumptions about people um, that are just often inaccurate. I think people all want the same thing. The other thing that I think uh, assumptions that are made are that people of color don't want to talk about the issues that are bothering them. And this has happened a lot. I, I was able to moderate a discussion once, really interesting conversation with the black employees of this big company. And, um, and one of the guys was a very uh, highly, what they call him, highly compensated employee executive. Um, really big guy, handsome guy who um, very well dressed, did very well with this company. And he, he was telling, he told his colleagues, I said, well, you can talk about anything you want. He said, I'm gonna tell a story. He told his colleagues that the night before he had um, heard a noise in his basement. And so he went downstairs and the door to the basement was open. And he said, I stood there for a minute and I thought, should I call the police? Maybe someone's in my house or should I close the door and go to bed because it was nine o'clock. And he said, I closed the door and went to bed because I was afraid of bringing the police to my house at 9 p.m. What might happen to me? And I think it was the first time that his colleagues who looked at him as like, yeah, but you're not that guy. Yeah. You're not the black guy who's gonna get shot or get in trouble. You are this executive. I think it was the first time people like actually understood it was such a, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop kind of story. And, and so I think we make assumptions like that all the time. You know, these people are this, but they're not those people. And often we're just, we're just wrong in our assumptions. And I don't know that you, as you say, right, if you just sit there and you're quiet and you kind of ask people what they're thinking, what their why is, why they exist, why do they need this, what's going through their minds, you, you learn so much more and you're usually embarrassed to find out like wow that's exactly the opposite of what i thought you were gonna say yeah. um you know so yeah keeping your mouth closed and just asking you know asking a question and listening i think is a really good strategy 
I'm going to um, throw one want... against Scott. Oh, Rick. go ahead, Nick. Great phrase yeah, yeah, no, no years stress. ago from someone. He said, nobody ever learned nothing when they were talking. <laughs> Good quote. I like that. Smart, simple, but very, very smart. I want to I want to just give you both um, the, the floor to just give me any last thoughts you have on on diversity, equity and inclusion in, in the corporate world, uh, how we address financial inequality, because then I want to ask some questions just to close it out. But just the floor is yours. Anything that we didn't go into today that you think is just very important to to highlight while we're here. Yeah, listen, uh, d diversity, equity, and inclusion is literally under attack. And I, I realize as the words are coming out of my mouth, it almost sounds crazy. But as you know, in the state of Florida where I live and other states, uh, similar thing. Like this idea that um, we should be trying to make the country fair and opportunity accessible to all, which seems very much part, for me at least, of the American dream, um, there are people who are pushing very hard back on that, who do not want that. And that, that both disappoints me and scares me a little bit. So I do hope that people who, who agree and just sort of feel like, eh, well, it's not really my it's not really my fight, right? I'm not really in this, you know, I'm a, a middle-aged white guy and, you know, like I'm, I'm I, it's not my fight. I think I hope that um, that those are the folks who say, actually, I, I do think this is important. I think it's important that for for everybody and that I'm going to stick my neck out and stand up and 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 push for the things for the kind of world that I would like to see, not because it's necessarily going to benefit me or not, but because it's important to what I believe are the values of this country. So, you know, that would be my sort of final thought on that. I, I mean, it's just simple for me. You know, Soldad says it eloquently. Do what's right. It's not that hard. Do what's right. Treat people the right way. Be, you know, be smart about it. It's going to be better for you in the long run. Just do what's right. It's not that hard. Um, I want to. I want to give you both a chance just to to drop your socials and your website so people can go connect with you reach out, find out more about what you're doing. Then I have a couple more questions to close it out. Um, but where do you want to send people? So, I mean, both of you are doing very different things. So what's what do you want to point people in the direction of? What are you excited about now? What are you working on now? So if the audience wants to connect, let them know where to go. Sure. I run a production company, so we always have uh, projects that we're working on. Our latest project just won a Peabody Award, which if you're not in TV, you have no idea what that means, but it's a big deal in my business. <laughs> Every so often, my husband's like, do I need to go to this award ceremony or do I not need to go? I'm like, yeah, don't need to go. Up, oh, do need to go to this one. Uh, so that's pretty exciting for us. And I was just uh, inducted into the uh, Broadcasting Cable Hall of Fame, which is also kind of I saw that. Congratulations. Right? I did yeah. sort of, my speech was like, this is usually what happens toward the end of your life <laughs> so so hopefully Listen, it's you're, mid, you're ahead of the curve mid-career <laughs> mid-career um uh so um anybody who wants to reach out to me and folks do all the time on on twitter and instagram which i always appreciate and i'm just at soledad o'brien kind of basic no apostrophe as we all know in the digital world no one has actually consistently figured out what to do with apostrophes so leave it out <laughs> um you know, I'm I'm just a boring life insurance guy, Scott. You know, I mean, uh, that's uh, that's kind of me. But uh, actually, what I'd love to do, and, and Soledad knows this too, I I'd love to do some I, the public speaking that I do about the industry and why it's important, and about uh, 
you know, how we can make a difference. I just have a great belief and passion in, in uh, that we can make a difference and really change communities and change lives. So I just continue to try to do that. And certainly, you know, hopefully my clients feel that way. And um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, but I'm also just, I'm just uh, easy to find if you go on, on so, you know, just generally on the internet and just uh, at my Email is ian.freeman at nm.com. And um, pretty easy to find. And by the way, Ian, there's nothing, there's nothing boring about, about the work that you're doing. Right. It's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people that work in finance, but I mean, you're putting yourself out there. You're mentoring people. You're, you're helping under, underrepresented communities. So don't ever, ever sell yourself short. Thank you. Um, two, two questions I want to ask to close this out, um, and, and they're for both of you. Uh, so the first question is, what would be one lesson that you would tell your 20-year-old self? Well, uh, I was a woman of color in an all-white community, so my lessons would all be around my hair and not to let certain people touch my hair <laughs> because oh my <laughs> we had some challenges, but I'm sure that's not what you're asking. Um, but it would be, uh, yes, do not cut your hair because it will be a giant triangle on your head for a long time. Um, I think I think the main thing is to always... Um, it's actually a lesson I really did learn around that age, right? Which is like, figure out what's your passion. I know so many people, especially now at my age, you know, you see the folks who just powered through to become the lawyer or become the doctor. And you realize like, eh, they're not necessarily all that happy with those decisions because like I was doing, right? I just figured it out a little bit earlier. Um, it seemed like a really good thing to do. It was a good box to check. And, um, and, and, you know, I sometimes talk to people and, it's, and, and they would say, oh, you know, I always wanted to do this or I always really thought about doing that. And you don't necessarily have to do it for a living. You could just do it on the side in some capacity. But I do think, you know, you only really get one sort of opportunity to live the life you want to live. And, and I think you should take advantage of that as much as you, as much as you can. So well, that would be probably my, my first piece of advice. Like if I were 20, I'd say, you know, just... Figure out what you're passionate about. Maybe it's going to take you a little bit of time and then go chase that. And then, you know, same thing, I think, not on a work front, but on a kind of uh, the front of just things that I like to do. As I mentioned, you know, I broke my foot horseback riding. And even with my stupid broken foot, I've been riding still. My PT guy <laughs> is like, just be careful getting on and don't fall off. You'll be fine. But, you know, like life is short and, you know, go for those things that you want to accomplish and um, and that bring you joy. Uh, being a martyr and slogging through is, you know, that's that's unnecessary and it's certainly not fun. So I'd say, you know, find your passion and then go and and and, and live it. So obviously, I echo that completely. If if you could find something at twenty years old that you're passionate about and you believe in, why not follow it? because it's going to be, you know, fine. Life is hard enough. And I remember quoting from a, from a movie, uh, said, you know, of course it's hard, but the hard's what makes it great. Because that's part of what it is, right? It's just this endless series of storms that we all tend to try to weather, right? And a lot of times you come out of the storm differently than you went in, but that's kind of what the storm is about. And so you tend to make sure if I was going back to look at that person, I'd say, you're going to go through that and try to believe in yourself before other people believe in you, which isn't always easy when you're 20. Good advice. Um, last question. 
after your careers and, and, how, and where you've gotten to today, um, I'm sure the definition of success has changed dramatically from when you started to, to now. So I ask this of every single person that comes on the show at this point in your life, what does success mean to you? You know, when I started out, success was like, oh, I'm making $11,000 a year. If I could just get to 25, you know, and then you're like, well, you know, really what I need to do is is get to 50. And then you think, well, you know what? I want to have X amount of dollars in the bank. And if I could just, you know, and, and I think at some point, uh, probably about 15 or 20 years ago, it began to dawn on me that success was actually about the freedom to work with the people you like and to work on the projects that you like. You know, it was less about the numbers and really just about like, who do I want to be surrounded with and what kind of work do I want to be doing every day? Because for my work, it's really, I remember I started my production company and one of the very first projects, I was working with a, some very miserable people and I just thought, oh my God, like the only fun you have when you launch as an entrepreneur, right? It's so hard. Like, And then also be working with people who are not nice. I was like, this is terrible. So I was like, you know, from now on, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to make sure that everybody who I'm working with is somebody that I've always wanted to be on a project with. And, you know, as we have to slog through this tough project, it'll be challenging, but not because the people are difficult. So for me, the success is ultimately about you know, are you getting a chance to live the life that you, you want to live? And, and that might be getting a lot of exercise or sleeping in every day. That might be, you know, learning how to bake, which I've given up on long ago. Or, you know, it might be getting a chance to see your kids all the time because you're willing to, you know, go and, and camp out and hang out with them. As you know, so I, I think it really, as you get older, you move away from the stuff and you move away from the money and you move into the, the value of time and the value of relationships. Success is not about money, right? Because if your only goal is money, there's never enough money. There's never enough money. You're always chasing something you'll never quite get there and you're always comparing yourself to something or someone that is just really not even relevant. So success for me really is the relationships that Soledad said, which is really the most important thing. But success really is trying to make a difference and living more a life of significance than it is of things. And if I could do that, you know, I'm trying to get there. We're not there yet. And we're a long way from there. We got to get better. Um, but if we could do that, you know, hopefully you wind up on the right side of the ledger. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. 
There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the 
the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 